Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the last Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast episode of 2020. On today's show, we'll be reacting to India's brilliant victory at the MCG, New Zealand's late win over Pakistan and a run fest at Centurion. And we'll also be gazing into our crystal balls to see what the future has in store for us, answering listeners' questions and a whole lot more. I'm Yajrana and to go through all that with me today is the Wisdom.com features editor, Tara Hashim, Wisdom Cricket Monthly editor-in-chief, Phil Walker, and the managing editor of Wisdom.com, Ben Gardner. We've got to start at the MCG where India put in what is surely one of the most complete away performances we've seen in Test cricket in recent years. To bounce back from 36 all out and all that at Adelaide to draw level with Australia in the border Gavaskar series. There's so much to talk about here. Rahane's 100, the debutants doing so well, Ashwin, Jadeja. Ben, what impressed you most about India's performance? So, I mean, obviously the, the highlight, the obvious highlight was the Rahane 100 on day two. And then, you know, the, they, they were brilliant on day one, sort of, you know, bounce back so strongly from the humiliation Adelaide. But actually for me, it was the the third test bowling performance that I just thought was... Third I mean, innings. Sorry, yeah, the third innings bowling performance. That's basic, basically nothing has been made of the fact that they were a fast bowler shy for pretty much the whole of that innings with Imesh Adav going off with, I think, a calf problem. Uh, like, that. that's the kind of thing that should completely scupper a team in Australia. They're so brutal with the bat there anyway. They sniff any sign of weakness, grind teams down into the dirt. And India just kind of shrugged it off. And then when you consider their attack included a debutant as well, like that's not something that happens that a team goes a bowler down uh, with a debutant in their attack and still bowls Australia out for 200. Uh, I think that what, what underpinned it, obviously Bumrah is brilliant as ever. Siraj was exceptional, but it's uh, those two spinners have grown from being two bowlers who knew how to make the most out of uh, Indian conditions to bowlers who would, uh, you know, like can excel anywhere, basically. Ashwin is a, an, a grown into being an incredible off-spin bowler wherever he bowls. Jadeja might well get into any team in the world on the strength of both his batting and his bowling at the moment, like either one. Um, it's uh, it, And it was just the, the pressure that they built up just and that they maintained throughout the whole uh, of that innings was incredible, really. I mean, Australia was scoring at under two and over, which is, again, it's just not, not something that happens to them at home. India were just relentless and it was uh, incredible to watch and, yeah, thoroughly deserved win. Just a word on Ashwin. Um, he, he was an artist throughout this test match um, and he's, he's now well on the way to becoming alongside Kumble, probably India's greatest spinner. I think he's already usurped Harbhajan. Just to be doing it now in these foreign climes where his record is famously skewed towards Indian pitches. But the way that he's bowling now, and assuming that he continues to have that this degree of control uh, of length and variation as well. I mean, the subtle variations are just beautiful to watch. And it's presuming that he has two competitive test matches coming up. Uh, and... If he can challenge England in English conditions this year, then he's absolutely nailed that position alongside Kumble as, as the greatest Indian spinner of all. Uh, he's been marvellous to watch. Having been slightly, am I right here, Ben, slightly iffy 12 to 18 months in the test arena? And obviously, you know, he's had one or two issues as well in the one-day stuff and reputationally. Uh, but it seems like all that is now behind him and he's bowling, he's bowling like a dream. Yeah, and it's... it's- He's sort of an interesting off-spinner to look at, I think, because a, a lot of spinners kind of, they're based on having a stock ball that they bowl over and over in the same spot that's threatening in itself. And then sort of a few sort of like minor variations, you know, they have like a slider, an arm ball, sort of a quicker one, that sort of thing. Ashwin, everything he does is like a minor variation on what he's done before. And he just has so many options. Like he's got a, a leg spinner that he bowls from time to time. There was 
that the, the ball to get Labuschagne, I don't think I've really seen an off-spin uh, wicket like it in the second innings. It was a bowl from sort of wide on the crease, round the wicket, kind of curving away and quite full, and then went straight on to take the outside edge. And it's just, I mean, players are going to be trying to face Ashwin. He's going to be doing things that they kind of never had to think about how to combat before. He is like, it's, it, it's right, it's proper artistry really to watch him work because he's just constantly tweaking, fiddling, working out a batsman, thinking what he's going to do next uh, and all while maintaining like control and consistency. It's not as if there's a lot of bad balls in there while he's trying things. He's doing it all with like a, a, a mastery of his game really. On, on Rouhani, standing captain for Virat Kohli, he's obviously gone home, but he was culpable for the run out of Kohli in the first test match. And in you've come, come in for a lot of criticism, they're backing in in particular for their away performances over the last few years. And Rahane has been a constant figure in that and arguably has been underperforming away from home in the, in the recent past. Um, so to score 100 like that, one of the great away hundreds, Boxing Day hundreds at the MCG was, was absolutely phenomenal. Especially since, I mean, you're right to highlight his away form. And I don't think people have quite picked up on that because obviously... He has, like, there was a time probably five or six years ago when he was maybe India's best batsman. He obviously made that, that brilliant 100 at Lords against England on a, a green top. He made, he's, made, he's made hundreds in Australia before. Uh, but this does just stand apart as, a, as yeah, his, his best test innings, uh, one of the best test innings really in, or possibly since Stokes's, I guess. Uh, it was, yeah, a, 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 an incredible... And I think also, I mean, it was, uh, it was just the control, I think. You don't, like, this... What, what was remarkable in that 36 all out was that, you know, every chance went to hand and India didn't feel like they did a huge amount wrong. They were just completely, like, like, over, like overcome by, like, a brilliant bowling attack. And Australia didn't bowl badly at all here. And yet, Rahane just kind of negated them. He didn't give them a huge amount of chances. There are obviously a couple drops here and there. But actually, and it, seemed, it felt in general like he was pretty much in control. And in the end, it was a run out that got him out because it didn't really feel like there was going to be any other way. And I mean, he's, he's kind of enjoying sort of a sweet spot at the moment that I guess players early on, I mean, obviously he's not full-time captain, but early on when you captain only a few games, people like to look for everything you do for a sort of positive thing. And he's definitely enjoying that at the moment. There was like, obviously, when he captained against Afghanistan, he got loads of praise for inviting them for the team photo. And then he let Siraj lead them off uh, after their day one bowling performance, which was obviously a nice gesture for the and then even just when he punched gloves with Jadeja after Jadeja ran him out, everyone was like, what a great guy. So he's, uh, he's, he's statesman-like as well, which befits an Indian captain. But I think that, yeah, he's uh, definitely sort of a man at the moment in quite a few ways, I guess. And, and his reaction to scoring the 100 was just unbelievably calm. You know, you just scored a, you know, one of the great test 100s and you just raised your bat as if you scored a half-century in a warm-up game. Tosh, Shuman Gill showed he could, he could play on debut. He's 21 years old. Averages 70 in first-class cricket and dealt with two really difficult passes to play in both innings with real class. Yeah, I mean, on that, on that first day when he just had to negate that sort of tricky period at the end of the day, I mean, to think, you know, a lot of these guys, you know, they haven't played in front of crowds for a while. You know, Shimna Gill comes in, test debut, MCG, you know, 30,000 people. Um, on the back of India, of course, being 36 all out. Um, and Pat Cummins is coming right at him and beating the bat, and he's just sort of playing inside line, hoping he doesn't get, hoping hoping he doesn't nick off. Um, and it was just an enthralling passage to play, and to get through that. And then when he did, when when the when when the ball was there to to hit it, he did, and he looked so good. And especially in that second innings, I mean, he just looked so balanced on his back foot. Um, some of his shots had a bit of hashimamlo about them, um, and. Yeah, what a start to his test career. I mean, he's obviously been hyped up quite a bit. Um, but to play, especially that first, that first day, that, that sort of last session, to play the way he played with India, you know, <laughs> obviously reeling from what happened that first test, it was quite, quite, quite a debut. That second innings, actually, or the, as in the chase, carries quite a lot of importance, actually, obviously for his own confidence showing he can play. But I think that... When, I mean, I don't think there was ever any real doubt that India were going to chase it. When they went two down early on, it kind of felt that, you know, if, if Australia took a few more and all of a sudden India are, you know, five down uh, when they complete the win, then actually, weirdly, Australia might have taken some sort of momentum into the second game, if, whether that whether momentum exists or not. But they would certainly have sort of reopened 
that scar a bit. India might go from thinking that they've, you know, completely outplayed Australia to sort of think, actually, we've had one good batting performance, but in general, we've kind of struggled with the bat and that sort of thing. And Australia go from thinking, like, we can't really score runs against India side, and now they're batting well as well, to thinking, like, actually, if we get a couple early on, then we can knock this India side over. So I think that there was, and, and it was kind of just the authority, you know, they did, like, just, yeah, as Tar said, just, like, the, the attacking shots in particular were just, like, sublime to watch, and it does feel like he's a batsman who's going to make bowlers pay if he stays in for any length of time. Mm. It's, the, it's, his, it's his stillness at the crease that, that struck me. And, and I think there's being a, there is a slight reversion among young, young players to, to revert back to a, a more kind of steady, still sturdiness at the crease. Um, the, the, the kind of the Steve Smith age of moving hither and thither across the crease. I think you're seeing more and more batsmen reverting to a different kind of approach. And, and at the top of the order when you're facing the quicks and it's seeming around a little bit, it makes sense. We saw on the other side of the coin, the Prithvi Shaw struggles last week when there's all kinds going on before the ball is bowled. And then you're not in a still position to actually contact, uh, make contact with the ball when it's, when it's there. Shubman Gill is on the other side of that coin and, and, and he looks like a, a ready-made opener. He has the setup to be, to be an opening batsman for a long, long time. Um, just... I mean, you've all kind of said it, but one shot stood out for me in that first innings uh, when Stark first morning bounced him, or first the morning after, because he was 20-odd, not out overnight. He bounced him and he hit him in front of square off the front foot, right off his nose. And he played it like he was facing a medium pacer. Now, the angle of Stark coming left arm over into you for a right-hand batsman, that shot is incredibly difficult to play. It doesn't matter who you are. It's easier to, to play a pull or a hook shot when the ball is angling towards your shoulder. For, for Gill, it was heading across, the, the, across his body, and yet he still managed to find that position and the time to play it with complete control, a sh- kind of short-arm checked pull in front of square. He did, played a similar shot, although slightly more aggressively in the second innings. Um, you, you expect a, a young player to be able to lean on a drive, sure. You don't expect a young player to be able to climb into a a bullet on a quick one from the fastest bowler in the world and make him look like a medium pacer. That's when your eyes do pop out of your head and you think, right, okay, we are dealing with something quite special here. I know this has been a long time coming. Some people would even on this podcast would have seen him live in the under-19s World Cup a little while ago. Well, there's reasons to be excited about this one, I think. He's, he's, he's at once a throwback to a different era and very much of the here and now. It's a, it's a potent combination. One of the questions that you always have about young players who start their test careers quite well against maybe less threatening attacks is, can they do it against the moving ball? Can they do it against express pace? You won't get many harder tests in, in your entire career than facing Cummins and Stark, the way they were bowling, with the pressure of what happened in Adelaide coming in on, the, on, that, on that first evening. Um, I thought that was an in, incredibly assured performance. And I don't think I've been this excited about a 21-year-old batsman before. Um, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, could, could I just add on that? I 100% agree with you, but he was, he had an interesting setup against the quicks in that he stayed quite leg side, didn't he? And especially in that first innings, he stayed leg side. And so he got runs down to third man. He also actually inside edged one, one or two past leg stump. It looked, it, it was Saywag esque in that he, he stayed leg side of it, trusted his hands through the offside. Um, and it works on true Australian pitches. And obviously he's a kid, so he's just getting going. But it'll be interesting, four test matches, five test matches in England in a few months' time. Saywag, which is, I'm not saying his model is his game on him because he clearly hasn't, but Saywag struggled for form in England in part because of the late swing uh, and lining himself up outside the eye line on those, those deliveries on off stump and outside. And, and, I mean, clearly he's class, so he will probably just shift his, his weight across slightly and his alignment across slightly. It was clearly a plan. It was a plan to stay leg side of, of, of those bombs and, and to trust his eye through the offside. Uh, it won't work quite as easily in England, but then he will adjust beforehand. Yeah, I guess it'll, it'll, it'll be interesting to see actually where he stays and where he does find his place. Obviously, he's come in and done well opening here, but I guess the two things to consider is, one, is that there isn't anywhere really easier... Well, in terms of the conditions, there's nowhere easier to open than Australia. Obviously, they have a brilliant bowling attack, which does obviously counterbalance that a bit. Uh, but he's made his, he sort of made his 
mark in first-class cricket mostly in the in the middle order, even num- number three, number four. Uh, and then there's also so Rohit Sharma is back with the squad, likely to be fit again for the next test. Now he's obviously India have tried for ages to kind of crack the Rohit enigma in test cricket. It kind of seemed like they had, I guess, when he sort of was moved up to open against uh, South Africa. But what was it about this time last year? Uh, 13 months ago and made double hundred, another big hundred. And that seemed like, okay, that's his place from now on. Um, but, you know, he's also, he has made runs lower down. He's just, maybe that was just kind of, you know, a, a weak attack, good conditions. And that's, he was going to make runs wherever he was at that point. So I guess the question is, if India select Rohit, do they knock out Agawal, the other opener? Do they pick him instead and push Gill down to number four, perhaps, and then drop, Fahari, or do they hit Rohit at number six? And 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 I think that Gill, he's not just going to be like it might not be. He ends up as an opener. I think that possibly, I mean, India also have a lot of middle order options. So it might be that that's where he stays for the moment. But I can see him slipping down to number four, that kind of fulcrum of the batting order at some point later in his career. Phil, one of your moments of the week was watching Mohammad Siraj bowl. Yeah, um, I'd seen some of him in the IPL, uh, and it's hard to get a gauge, isn't it, of a, of a young quick. Um, a young kind of willowy quick in the IPL when he's got 40 yard boundaries either side and so on. But uh, he looked like the real deal to me. And, and he, he looked like, again, he, he carried that, that, that streak of new India, that kind of good arrogance that all their young players seem to have. He's quick enough through the air, 135 clicks, which is what, you know, mid eighties at MPH. And, and, uh, and he got Cameron Green out twice in the match and, and, and my moment, my moment was, was a few things from the game, actually. But if I were going to pick one specific moment out, it was on that final morning when, all right, it was still a 20-to-one shot. But Cameron Green was playing quite nicely. And Siraj bounced him and it was taken, I think, by, um, by Jadeja at mid-wicket above his head. And that was, that was the end of the game, in effect. Um, but it was more... And he got him out in the first innings as well, Siraj. He got him out, he really set him up in the classic sort of three-card trick when he hit him on the pads. Uh, two away swingers, one in Ducker. But it was more just watching two young kids come through who you're going to see a lot more of in the years to come. And there's always that special little buzz around it in Test cricket in particular when you see two, two young Turks, 21-year-old or whatever, and, and you don't know too much of them and you see them growing in the arena, really. And, and Green, Green played very nicely for that 40-odd Australia already, thinking that he's Bradman Mark II, as they tend to do. Uh, I dare say we'd be doing the same if he was English. Uh, but to see the two of those, those two young kids going at one another, looking like the real deal, looking like they care as well, looking like this is the most important game of cricket that they've played in their lives. And we want to see that in Test cricket. We want, we want to believe that it's still that, that, that kind of pinnacle of, of, of these cricketers' lives. And so that was quite a heartening sort of mini spell. And obviously I was rooting for India to... to to get rid of him as well and, and, and to win that game, to set up what could be a, a legendary series now. I just, I just wanted to add something else. Sorry, I know I tend to do this. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, the other, the, the, I, I was going to mention Ricky Ponting's comments. Did anyone see Ponting's comments on the, on the TV that were then reported in the press after the, after the first innings? He really went after Australia's batsmen and he spoke, he spoke about them being sitting ducks in effect. Did anyone see this? No, I've, I've seen similar things said about sort of the, the lack of transference of pressure back to India. Yeah, it's a... He was typically brilliant and, and he's, he occupies a fascinating role anyway in Australian cricket because he's, he's kind of like a, like, a, like a de facto coach, isn't he? Like an assistant coach without the title. Uh, and obviously Langer refers to him as his confidant quite, quite often. So when Ponting goes after you, you know that he's not, not just talking tall for money. He means it, and he knows that, this, that his words carry weight. And it was fascinating what he said after that first innings. And he made the point, and this is a point that I think England can bear in mind this time next year, Ashes Claxon. He said, to a certain degree, when you face really good bowlers, you have to take more of a chance. You have to be prepared to live a little as a batsman. You can't sit on good bowlers. And it, there's, he said, the less, this is a quote now, the lesser skilled bowlers you can sit on all day because you know they're going to bowl one or two scoring opportunities for an over. But Bumrah, Ashwin, Jadeja, Siraj, he said to a certain degree, they don't make mistakes. So you have to, quote, against the best bowlers, you have to take more risks as a batsman. 
And I think that's a very interesting perspective to take because there is that assumption that you have to play the long game against the real good ones. Well, if you do that, then it doesn't matter how flat the track is, there's a ball with your name on it. Hmm. Uh, England fell into that trap last time out uh, and they're talking a similar game now, staying in the game, being attritional. But if you watch, if you watch how, the, how the best players play against like, these kinds of attacks, and Australia's attack obviously applies just as much as India's does, then you have to make the game. You have to play... play uh, you have to live a little as a batsman. And, and Australia collectively failed to do that in that first innings. And they also failed to do it in the second as well. I mean, for an Australian side that 20 years ago were going at four and over regularly, almost as a constitutional expectation, you know, Mark Taylor put it in on the Bill of Rights. And now they're sort of crawling along at two, two and a half and over if they're lucky. And okay, they lose Warner up top and that impetus, but it's, uh, it's an attitudinal thing as well. And, it, and it's something that, that all teams these days, they have to be mindful of, not least England this time next year. Yeah, I think um, the, the, the Warner point is a really interesting one. And obviously it's a cliche to talk about big first hour, but I think that actually the series could almost hinge on the, the first hour, the first session of Australia's first innings in the third test, if Warner is back. if Because, I mean, it's, that's something that Australia almost haven't had to worry about batting tempo, especially at home, because Warner's just taken care of it for him. He, you know, he, he runs hard and, you know, so the strikes where he's rotating, he hits a lot of boundaries, scores quickly, scores big. But, and so it's not just India's, it's not just Warner's runs that Australia have missed. It's that, you know, that they're kind of, they're, they're ahead of the game 10 overs in because Warner's inevitably got them off to a flyer sort of thing. And this, this bowling attack that India have is like as good as almost as anything Australia would have faced at home. So if he can do the same to them, then it will kind of, as, as well as, you know, Australia will kind of just feel a bit safe with him in the side and with him doing that, uh, it will kind of show the rest of the batsmen that, you know, you can hit them before and that sort of thing. It won't be dissimilar to when Jason Roy came back into the England side partly through the World Cup campaign. Um, England kind of, they, they, the, the whole team just sort of walks a bit tall and you've got a player like that opening the batting. Like, and all it can take is just a couple of shots for them to look like, uh, sort of get you your whole team out of the batting funk in a way. So that'd be interesting to see. And on lessons for England to learn. I think that the flip side works as well, that England can actually, obviously England have put all their hopes almost in having like a, a battery of proper quick so they can rotate for this or next year. And obviously Bumrah is quick, Amesh is, qu- is quick enough, Siraj is like quick, but he's not express, you know. And really actually India's win was built on just pressure, building pressure, no bad balls, not letting Australia get away, sort of constantly threatening. And actually, perhaps if, if, if Wokes has properly sort of improved with the Kookaburra, if Broad is still bowling as well as he has, uh, there's no reason why an attack with two of those and Anderson in it, who are just building pressure, can't have success against this Australia batting lineup, actually. And it doesn't have to just be that pace is the only way to blow Australia away at home. There is a way to just sort of smother them until you kind of get your rewards, I think. But yeah, I mean, we've, we've talked a, a lot about India, um, but, but Australia have quite a few question marks around their top six. Um, two more failures from Joe Burns have seen him dropped from the squad for the third test. Cameron Green is just making his way into test cricket. Travis Head is struggling a little bit. And as we discussed at last week's show, kind of tongue in cheek, um, but Steve Smith's not actually getting that many runs. Warner is back in the squad for the third test, as is Will Bukowski, who we've talked about a lot on this show before. Firstly, Taha, what, what do you make of the, the treatment of Burns? Well, it's funny, sort of like a test ago, he gets his half century and I'm thinking, like, fair play to Australia for backing him because it was like, he, he shouldn't have been there. Like, he was struggling big time and the Sheffield Shield, really terrible in the warm-ups. Um, obviously, I guess he just got a bit lucky with injuries to, to get in there. Um, and then at the same time, I'm thinking, well, if Australia persists with Joe Burns, surely they could give Prithvi Shaw another go. Uh, and then here we are, a test later, Shimon Gill's you know, a batting genius and, and Joe Burns is, is out. And um, it's funny because this is, Joe Burns has had a really strange old test career. He's been dropped so many times before, um, sort of quite harshly discarded. Um, and this is the one time Australia got it wrong. They, they should have dropped him before that first test. There was, I mean, just logically thinking, if you're struggling against bowlers in the Sheffield Shield, I don't think you're going to play yourself back into form against this Indian attack. Obviously, he got that half century, but that was after India had been rolled over for, rolled over for 36. Um, 
So I do, I do, I do just feel for him. Really, he kind of should have been cut out way before this series. Mm. And Ben, you're not convinced about a the, the the form that Travis Head is in, but also b the um, the, the talk around Cameron Green and how Australian pundits might be prematurely calling him as a as the next big thing. Yeah, well, I'll take the, the Cameron Green thing first because it was I was it was almost comical really when he was batting on a on day three. You know, uh, it was sort of, it was it was he was doing okay, but uh, India was he, he wasn't getting away from India at any point. That was kind of in his plan to sort of keep players tied down. And uh, then all of a sudden, I think it might have been uh, Kerry O'Keefe possibly he says. So let's look at where Cameron Green could end up. Obviously, you've got Jack Callis and Gary Sobers, and it's like, <laughs> where is this coming from? Is it going to second test? He's not yet taken a wicket or scored a half century, and you're uh, you're wondering like where inside the top five test rounders in the world is uh, of, of all time is this guy going to end up? Um, yeah, obviously you know got a pretty first class record. Uh, and you're not writing him off? No, I'm not, I'm not writing him off. No, what what I do think actually is that I think Australia right now slightly overrate his bowling. He is he lives up to the hype in terms of his speed. He was sort of clocking above 140, but obviously this Australia attack is much much more than just like three quick bowlers uh they're like they're relentless in a similar way to how india's attack is and they also have uh <laughs> they, they also have a, a, a brilliant spinner and i think i think the risk is and i think you actually saw this in the first innings that uh australia would they, they brought online i think a bit too late because they kind of felt okay we've got four quicks let's give them all a go before we turn to the spinner and actually at this point there's not many times where line isn't going to be more of a threat than Cameron Green, I think. So I think that Australia just needs to be, obviously, in time, and he does still give balance, even if he is the properly the fifth bowler, who you know is bowling you five overs before the second new ball. But I think Australia needs to think of him as that, rather than as a genuine sort of fourth, like, attack option. Like, he's, like, you know, they've got their four men, and they've got Cameron Green, they kind of need to use a bit of a part-timer, I think, at the moment, rather than as the proper, like, attacking weapon, I think. Uh, and yet, Head is another one, a bit like Burns, who's had a, an odd career so far, uh, because, and he's one that, the, the way that some of the pundits are talking about him is as if he's like, sort of horrifically out of form, Australia have put loads of faith in him, and he's like, hardly repaid at all, when actually he's just turned 27 yesterday, I think, uh, depending on when the show goes out, uh, average is just under 40 in test cricket, there's a lot of, like, great batsmen who've had worse starts their test career than he has. And it was only, I think, six innings ago that you got 100 in the last Boxing Day test against New Zealand, a very good New Zealand attack to sort of give Australia a series ceiling win, I think. So I think, but, but the other side of the coin is that he hasn't got big runs in this series and he's never had like a properly, you know, uh, series defining performance just in terms of like making consistent runs to win Australia a series by himself. So I think he can't really have any complaints if he's left out and it might almost be a case of, Australia picking Pekoski overhead rather than uh, sort of dropping head because he's out of form. And I think he will come back. And I think Australia would be right to give him another go further down the line. I don't think he has disgraced himself by any means. Uh, it's just one of those things that for right now for this series, Australia might feel that they've got six other batsmen who are going to score more runs than him. And that's probably fair enough. Yeah, just quickly on Cameron Green. He played one very good shot. Um, the, the kind of on-the-knee cut through point. Um, that, that was very good. And I think that I kind of disagree with, you, with his bowling. I, I, I agree that I think Australia overbowled him, but I think I can see him uh, being capable of bowling um, test match winning spells in the not too distant future. But I don't think he should have bowled as much as he did. I thought it was weird how little Lion bowled at times. We, we, you guys have already kind of alluded to it, but um, we are looking forward to 2021. And Australia, India is a particularly relevant series from an England point of view as well England play almost entirely against those two teams in 2021 um what do you think England can take away from the, the these first two tests so far like how, how, do, how do you think have, have your expectations of how England series against India and Australia changed off what you've seen in the first two test matches of this series going back to the point I made earlier I think the, the key for England well firstly the overall the obvious key is to keep their bowlers fit they have to be able to pick six or seven seamers um, and rotate them and have them all working as a unit. Uh, but they, they have to find the right tempo with the bat. I think that is absolutely key. And, and I think it begins in the subcontinent, 
it begins with the opening batsman in the subcontinent. And I think it, the same questions will be asked of the, the top seven uh, at the start of the year, just as it would at the end of the year in different conditions. But the same things will apply. Um, they, they need to find the right kind of tempo, I think. And if you sit on your bat and you hope to just funnel a few runs here and there and bat time, uh, then I think, I, th- I think at, at the top of the order, I think with our, with our current two openers, I think there may be some issues there. So, so yeah, I think finding the right balance um, is key for the batsman. And I think that ponting line that I mentioned earlier really did strike a chord with me. And I think that's very relevant. I think they need to, to find a way to live a little, to, to express themselves but to do it within within bounds, you know, and I guess this is the art of batting, but I think it feels more more relevant now with this particular setup of players than it than it ever has done really. And uh, and I think if England are going to stand a chance of competing in India and in Australia, uh, then they can't just hunker down in their bunkers and hope for the best because uh, it just won't happen like that. On the question of whether it's changed, how I think England will do. Uh... Not hugely, apart from I think they might also get beaten at home by India. I think that what's really stood out, to be honest, I mean, as much as, you know, Australia have their issues to work out, is just like how high quality both these two teams are. And, you know, Australia, even while Phil's right to point out the tempo concerns, they haven't batted badly. And I don't think England are going to be able to bowl really as well as this India side have. And especially for India to have, you know, three quits ruled out to still be able to bowl this well is a... Astonishing, really. I don't think England are going to, yeah, come close, really, to be honest. And that home series against India is their best chance to win out of those three series. But even that, I think, as India just sort of improve, looks less likely, I think. Well, well I, I disagree on the seamers. I think England have got a really crack seam attack. Uh, I think it's, it's a really interesting mix. Uh, youth and experience of real pace and canniness. I think they work well as a group. Uh, I think they deserve a lot of respect as a seam attack. But the obvious issue, and we've discussed it last week, and we'll discuss it until we're, until we're blue, in the, blue in the face. Uh, can they provide the control in the slow bowling, attack, uh, slow bowling department? That is the huge elephant in the room, really, uh, for this side. If they could bring through a spinner that they can really trust, then I think that they can have a real effect. And bowling attacks in long test match series, they win, they win test matches, they win test series. Uh, and I think England have got an absolute chance. I really do. Uh, but but the slow bowling side is, is the huge question, really. On Yeah, on Phil's point with the batting tempo, I mean, the more I've watched the series, the more I'm convinced that England's main man with the bat will be Zach Crawley. Um, watching Truman Gill, I kind of saw that sort of that similarity, the, the tall guy who can ride the bounce, who can, who can bat aggressively. Um, if I was tipping a guy to be England's leading run score in the Ashes a year from now, It'd be him. Um, with, with the point about the slow bowlers, England, I'm afraid, they're not going to find an Ashwin in a year. They don't have one. That's why I think they'll go down in India pretty comfortably. Um, and that's, that's what they'll be looking at in the series, thinking we've got, we've got that pace attack that can do it. But those two tweakers that, that India have, Ashwin, Jadeja, I mean, take Jadeja out of it if you're just thinking about Ashwin. Um, a guy who can... And we talk, we're talking about spinners containing here, but Ashwin's been attacking as well. He's, he's taken up wickets. He's not just going at a few and over. And then that's, that's the one thing they'll look at with Envy, with India. They just don't have that. All right. Well, well I'm, I'm going to make a prediction right now and you can come back and take the piss out of me in, in time to come. I think England will win one test match, at least in India. I think they'll beat India at home and I think they'll win at least one test match in Australia. I'm not saying they'll win either of those test series away from home. But I think they'll take something off both those teams. The question is, can they win two? I thought that there's one particularly ominous moment uh, for the England in India tour, which was uh, Shubman Gill coming down the wicket to Nathan Lyon. I think the first over Lyon bowled to Gill. And Gill um, hitting him through extra cover for four. And his first over facing spin in Test cricket. And I thought, oh God, England spinners are in for a tough time in India. Yeah. Moving on to New Zealand, where we had a thrilling finish to round off the year. New Zealand taking the final Pakistan wicket in the dying moments of day five to go 1-0 up in the series and go ever closer to claiming that elusive number one world ranking. Avoid defeat in the second test and they will definitely go top. Taha, your moment of the week is from this test. 
uh, it is, is waking up this morning to see that my man, um, Farad Alam, had scored his first test century in 11 years. The man with the most ridiculous looking batting stance since George Bailey showed us his backside. Um, I saw cricket, a cricket, uh, cricket info piece, uh, just relaying off some stats, and it was, it's 4,218 days since his last test century. Um, in a monster partnership with Rizwan, who's yeah, slowly becoming one of my favourite cricketers. Um, and they nearly, they nearly pulled off the draw, but, you know, it's New Zealand. They're contractually obliged to, to win test matches at home. But yeah, what what a story! And then they celebration as well. He looked when he when he got to his century. All of me looked. He looked rather emotional. <laughs> it's pretty understandable. Um, and also the way he set up. I mean, it looks ridiculous, but it seems like it sets him up quite nicely to play the pull shot. And he looked like he played Neil Wagner pretty well from what I, from what I could see on the on the highlights. But yeah, what a story that is. So one of our one of our listeners, man on the street, asks: Should Pakistan find space for Fawad Alam even when Baba returns? If so, who will make way for him? Well, I think it'd just be so on brand if Pakistan dropped him now. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, obviously they'll they'll find space for him. Uh, I kind of thinking about it. I mean, Arsahel had a pretty poor match, but I do do like him. And I was thinking if if Baba is fit, a, a pretty positive move and quite a logical one would to have him at three and I think you could potentially drop one of the openers maybe move Azarali up to open he's obviously done it before I feel like that would be quite a strong move against this New Zealand attack if you've got Baba coming at one down because the way they're bowling uh, you know <laughs> back to one down pretty quickly I reckon sorry that's definitely what I would do I think Abid Ali I know he's, he's a nice story um, but you know he's well into his 30s I know he had a great start to his test career but Struggled in this last Test match, bagged a bagged a blob in the in the second innings, and yeah, I would I would go that way. I would open with Azar and I'd bring Baba in at number three. Ben, question for you: Nakul Pandey asks, how few toes could Neil Wagner bowl on? Yeah, well, this is this, this is my my moment of the week, and it's <laughs> I think I think it's in negative numbers to be honest. I think he could uh, he could probably bowl without fingers at this point. Um, he. Uh, it was, yeah, I mean, so for, for, for context, he got hit on the toe or on the foot while batting on uh, day one or two. Um, and then uh, first, it seemed like he had one broken toe. And then there was a, an, an incredible little sort of recorded pitch side chat that like, this, I think Spark Sports is who's showing it in New Zealand, uh, recorded between uh, uh, Trent Bolt and Neil Wagner, just they were both preparing to return to the field at one point. And Neil Wagner was like, Oh, how are you going? And Trevor was like, yeah, not bad. You hope we get a couple wicket sort of thing. And everyone was like, yeah, just found out another my toes is broken. <laughs> Trevor was like, oh, no way. That's, a, that's pretty bad. I was like, yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, yeah, still proceeding to take four wickets, including bowling like heaps of bounces as he always does. Gave a brilliant post-match interview as well where he said, like, if I'm not being stretched off, I'm going to be bowling for New Zealand while also going into what sounded like pretty bad pain. Was saying like, uh, yeah, it hurts when I'm walking. It hurts when I'm standing, to be fair. That's when I'm running in. Uh, so, yeah, uh, yeah he, he's an incredible bowler. I guess, I mean, we're going to come on to injury subs a bit more in a bit. And I suppose if you're being, if you're looking for reasons to defy uh, why we should have injury subs, maybe you point to performances like Neil Wagner's as adding to the colour of test cricket. You know, I mean, it's, it's certainly added to this test match that you've had a guy with, you know, half his foot falling off. Uh, playing a key role in a win. But then equally, I don't think we should be, you know, asking people to put themselves through sort of uh, <laughs> broken bones, serious injuries, just to basically entertain us. I think that would say something quite odd about us as a society if we were specifically asking them to do that as much as we could appreciate it when it sort of does happen in this way. Um, but yeah, no, Neil Wagner, what, what a guy. Just, just get a hammer out before we start the test and start hammering people's toes to make it more entertaining for everyone. Um, there was another Kane Williamson 100 in the first innings. His test average now sits above Brian Lara's, Javan Meandad, Raul Dravid, Mohamed Yusuf, Ricky Ponting, Shiv Chandapal, A.B. De Villiers, Alan Baller, Steve Waugh, Viv Richards, and it's marginally behind Virat Kohli's and Sachin Tendulkar's. Um, he is a handy player. Williamson's quotes at the end of the game I thought were very, very interesting and, and a real boon to the the much maligned and derided World Test Championship, he said that we had to win at all costs. And uh, 
and Pakistan had to win at all costs as well. And Williamson doesn't often say anything at the end of a game, uh, but he made it quite clear, and, and this is a quote, going in that last session, we still clearly had that opportunity, as did Pakistan, but in terms of the contest of the WTC, losing it in trying to win it was still a better bet than anything else. That is a very, very significant statement by a, by a test captain. And for decades, centuries, you'd have rarely heard a captain, unless it's a kind of radical, maverick, Brian Close, Garfield Sobers kind of character, who would be prepared to say that. That they'd be prepared to lose the first test of a series in order to win it. And that is because of this World Test Championship. So if we're trying to find reasons why to persist with it, and trying to find reasons why to shoot, shoot down the ICC's latest boss, who argues that it's not even fit for purpose, uh, then, then that quote from Williamson should be slapped right at the top of their Dubai offices and, and, and made quite clear that this is, this is one of the many, many benefits to this thing. I thought that was quite significant yeah. on, his, on his part. It's an interesting yeah. contrast to, to the England test at the end of the summer against Pakistan, where England walked off the field needing six wickets from the final hour. From a, from a traditionalist point of view, you'd be like, oh yeah, taking six wickets in the final hour and you've already won the series, why bother? But in the context of the World Test Championship, you can take six wickets an hour, so why are you walking off? And at the time, we didn't actually scrutinise it on this podcast. Um, I think we should have done. Um, but it's really good seeing a leading test captain um, outwardly say that's a priority for his team. I guess yeah. That can only be a good thing. Yeah, and it's actually, it struck me even in, so firstly, if you haven't seen the last ball of that game, you should go and seek it out. I think we might have posted it on our, on our Twitter feed, sort of, you know, all, all, all nine fielders around the bat. Uh, and then it's the bowler who takes a, a brilliant court and bowl, sort of like plucking out the air above his head, to spark wild celebrations. But that's what the, uh, the commentators were saying as well in the immediate aftermath, was saying like they've like edged one step close to that World Test Championship final. You know, that's not, you know, that's not something you, that's the kind of thing we hope commentators would be saying when we launch the World Test Championship, but not something that we've seen so far. And now that it's kind of reaching this point where we can talk about permutations, it's kind of coming into its own as, as a competition, I think. Mm. Moving to South Africa, South Africa claimed an innings victory over a decimated Sri Lanka side. Um, it's one of, the, one of the few times I can remember a side losing by an innings, but also leaving the test with a lot of credit. Um, ben, you have a few thoughts on this, and can you briefly explain why Sri Lanka can, can leave that test with their, with their heads held high? Yeah, well, I think especially it's odd to, for Sri Lanka to feel that way, given you know, their recent record against and in South Africa. You know, they won four tests against them on the bounce, including two in South Africa in that incredible series at the start of last year. Um, so for them, and so they would have come into this series and this game with hopes of sort of, of a repeat, I think. And, you know, South Africa are at a low ebb, like kind of there for the taking. Um, and then it seemed for quite a lot of day one as if, you know, Sri Lanka were absolutely there to kind of compete again, sort of racked up 400 pretty quickly um, and would have had South Africa on the ropes if they hadn't, as Yaz said, been decimated just injury after injury sort of veering into the comical at some point like uh was it was it, who was it who was stretched off after being stung by a bee Dick um, yeah which is a uh, yeah just just kind of shows how quickly it all fell apart so who, let's try and think who, who were all the people who were injured so dan and jada silver was 79 not out i think when he uh uh did a hip flexor injury i think is the official term uh kassin brigitta who's a looks like impressive quick bowler but he went off after a couple of overs of his opening spell. I'm right, I'm right in thinking that Wanindu Hasaranga also went off injured at one point as well, sort of after fielding on the boundary, and then struck a good half-century in the third innings. But uh, So, yeah, they were just losing bowlers left, right and centre, basically. Um, and it's, I think the thing for me is it just hammered home that like, like it, it significantly reduced the Test match as a spectacle, basically. I don't think that even Staff Africa fans would have taken a huge amount of joy from the win against what was basically an, a seven and a half man team by the end of it. Um, and it made me think that, and we mentioned it on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, actually, in relation to the Yusventra Chahal concussion hamstring situation, uh, as a, a jazz band for you. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, it's about time, I think, that cricket can seriously considered introducing injury subs at the top level. Um, I think that there are a few reasonable arguments against it that teams might look to exploit it or that teams might pick half-fit players sort of knowing that they won't get too badly hurt if 
uh, if someone, if, you know, if, if they turns out they aren't fit equally, I think that those concerns can be mitigated. I think that uh, on the former, I think if you have independent medical assessors and you have to nominate substitutes pre-match, I think that takes out most of the concerns because then you're going to nominate as like for like as you can have. And so if you're not picking them in your first 11, then why are you picking them at all kind of thing? Or why would you sub them out halfway through? Um, and I, uh, I think on the second concern with um, uh, teams picking half the players, I think that teams would just be silly to do that, basically. I think that you would actually lose a lot more by doing that. As we saw, England did it the first test of 2019 Ashes when James Anderson was returning from injury and played a first-class game. Uh, picked him and then four overs in he was done for the series whereas if England hadn't picked him for that first test allowed him to sort of prove his fitness get his fitness back a bit more they might well have had him for test two through five and who knows what the result of that series could have been at that point so I think yeah it, it, injury subs is something I think cricket should think quite significantly about I think I think because also I think that it's not unrelated to the the pandemic that we're seeing more injuries as well I think as sort of we try and cram you know 18 months of cricket into 12 months, basically. Players are just being asked to sort of do more and more and more and always having to, you know, go through quarantine periods ahead of test series, which means they can't prepare as they would like, they can't play the warm-up games where they can sort of properly improve their match fitness. We're going to be getting more of these soft tissue injuries, I guess. Um, and I think that it would be a, a sensible time to sort of trial it, but possibly with a view to keeping it permanently. In that game, Safka responded with 6-2-1 against Shranka's first innings, 3-9-6, with Faf Dupessi registering a career-best 199. Four Shranka were bowled out for just 180 um, in their second innings. There was a debut from young Saf and quick Lutho Sip Amla, who we saw in the T20i series against England recently. His, um, he came back really well. His first bell was, was very wayward, um, but he ended up taking six wickets in the match, so impressive recovery from him. Um, we are Mulder, the 22-year-old all-rounder, playing in his second test. Looks like an improved player compared to his maiden test outing two years ago. Um, I was speaking to friend of the podcast Dan Gallon, uh, who, who knows all things South Africa cricket, um, and he 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 reckons that Mulder's put on a yard of pace and um, tells me there's a, there's a lot of excitement around him in South Africa. Mm. Um, well, one day he might be as good as the uh, the great Cameron Green. One day, one day. Uh, there, was, um, there was a bizarre moment early in the test when Temba Bavuma went on 71, walked after missing a ball by quite a long way. It wasn't even given out. And even, even, even if he was given out by the umpire, um, Saka did have three reviews left. Um, very odd incident. Something very similar happened in the New Zealand test match where Henry Nichols was hit on the forearm. Um, he, he was on 50-odd. New Zealand had three reviews and he opted not to review it. So it, it turns out batsmen don't always know it when they've, when they've hit it. Yeah, um, I think Tim Vuma won. He just can't, he can't stomach the thought of getting easy runs. Uh, he just lives off hard runs. And also, I think he saw that how many players Sri Lanka were losing left, right and centre and thought he'd better level the playing field. So I think you would earn a lot of praise for the move, if, if I'm honest. He's, he's not here test century since the, his first one, which was the start of 2016. I mean, he was, he was, he was there for a second one. Five years on. Some England-related news this week. Nick Holt of The Telegraph has reported that the India-England series in early 2021 is set to be shown in the UK by Disney on their streaming services. The exact details are not confirmed yet, but, it's that there's, but there's a possibility that you need a hot start subscription for the first two tests before hot star content becomes available on Disney Plus from test match number three. Holt also reported that Amazon are hoping to win the UK rights to the 2021-22 Ashes, which means that in a relatively short space of time, cricket fans in the UK would have gone from having, having to need one subscription to pay for to watch their cricket to having four, Sky, BT Sport, Disney and Amazon. Phil, you have some thoughts on this. Yeah, well, be careful what you wish for, I suppose. Um, I'm, I'm old enough to remember watching snippets on Transworld Sport on a, on a Saturday morning on Channel 4 and they'd give you a 10-second clip of a test match from Pakistan or New Zealand. Uh, England toured uh, the West Indies in 89-90 for the first overseas tour and Sky brought that to us and that was, that was an, an, an epoch-defining moment, really, uh, for the game and the way that the game is broadcast. Uh, Sky have been its, uh, its kind of benevolent despot figures at the top of, the top of the game up until now. But you saw with BT 
for the 2017 Ashes that they were flexing their muscles, baring their teeth. Uh, and just as you've seen it in the footballing world as well, you're seeing it now in the cricket world. Uh, and just as you open it up to the private sector and you open it up to private, private enterprise in the first place, then this kind of competition is an inevitable result, I suppose, in the end. But of course, the people who, who get stuffed, the people who get hit are, the, are those people up and down the country who are now contemplating having to fork out yet another subscription to watch to watch their cricket team play a game of cricket. Um, I haven't had the, the heart to tot up the amount of money it would cost me and my, my, me and my partner to get this extra subscription. Um, it's, it's, quite a, it's quite an unappealing thought, to be honest. Um, and and, and it, it leaves the game probably more cash rich than it's ever been before because competition is good. And from the, from the suits perspective, from the marketing and the, the commercial perspective, this is a positive thing. Uh, because they want people with money to be fighting over the rights to show their games of cricket. But for the consumer, it's another kick in the balls. Um, and uh, just remains to be seen just how, how out of hand this becomes now, you know. Um, it's interesting from a Sky perspective, and I have to say I haven't spoken to anyone from Sky in the last few days since this news came through, and it was a shock to me. Uh, but I know that their relationship with the BCCI is maybe not as fruitful as it might be, let's say. And that it was inevitable, I think, that Sky were going to struggle to pick up this India series. Uh, but you would have assumed it, it would have gone to their direct competitor. But now, with the, the heft of Amazon being seen in football and now spreading into cricket, uh, and with Disney as well, you wonder where it's going to stop. And and the, these kinds of conversations will have to be had in the boardrooms because what will people do? Let's be honest. We live in the real world. What will people do? They'll go and stream it illegally. Increasingly, they'll go and stream it illegally. And if that happens, uh, as Giles Clark infamously said seven or eight years ago, the biggest existential threat to cricket today is illegal streaming. Now, you know, Giles Clark is a money man to his bootlaces. So you've got to take that with a pinch of salt. But you understand where he was coming from. Uh, and if people are looking at the landscape and thinking, you're taking the piss now, then where will they go? They'll, they'll go? they'll go illegally. And they'll still be able to get hold of some kind of stream and they'll think, okay, well, I've given everything I can. I've paid already through the roof for subscriptions one, two, and three. I can't stomach paying for subscription number four. Ben, you had a suggestion around how right should work? Yeah, well, it was, it was suggested... Uh, a while ago, I think, I think it was even discussed possibly at, at, at reasonably high levels that uh, the ICC might look to sort of pull nations' rights together and uh, and sell them, and, that, and then that would also lead to sort of a more equitable sharing of TV rights as well. Because I think the thing is, is that all of these things are kind of connected, you know, these like compressed schedules, these like endless sort of, or the proliferating number of plays you're going to have to pay to get your things because tv is so dependent on uh, cricket is so dependent on uh tv money and also because each specific country is dependent on home series for that tv money whereas if you could have so the, the product gets diminished essentially because each country wants to play a certain amount of home cricket as so they can sort of like sort of keep themselves afloat essentially whereas if you had it so that um uh like south africa were benefiting sort of like a bit from touring Australia as Australia were benefiting hugely then you might well get sort of a, like a better product overall a healthier game overall and the uh, cricket fans might have um, uh, a bit more a bit more cash as well and be able to watch more cricket as well which is what keeps people engaged and, all, and does keep the sport alive as much as you know money going into governing bodies does I think it's, it's probably optimistic to expect that that will happen um but that would be i mean a solution of a sort as well i think i think it's worth saying though this isn't the ecb's decision to broadcast it on 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 disney uh, no. so star sports own the rights to what cricket is shown in india star sports star sports is owned by disney so they they are in effect keeping uh the rights to themselves um but yeah, as, as, as you both said, it's kind of an inevitable consequence of the current right system. Um, I think one point as well is that I don't think any of these, uh, I don't think any of the broadcasters are particularly unhappy about 
situation. It'll be, it'll be interesting to hear what Sky say if they do end up losing the rights to Disney. But actually, in a way, I don't think that Amazon say want to get into a position where they're showing all cricket to everyone. I think in a way they're kind of quite happy to sort of have like almost a small enough slice of the pie that will like compel cricket fans to subscribe to them as well as all the others, I think. And similar with BT, I don't think BT would want to be showing all cricket all the time. I think they want to have enough cricket that sort of serious cricket fans feel that they need to fork out for this as well. It's almost that like actually they're, they're almost not in competition in a way because they're all happy having like their own slice that compels like the, the diehard cricket fan to fork out for them and then like it's it, it's just part of it's the consumer that suffers in the end. There was some sad news over the Christmas period. Former Surrey and England men John Edrich and Robin Jackman both passed away. Um, John Edrich I guess is a name that to younger listeners will be familiar from looking at the, the, the great England run scoring lists the year gone by. And I, I don't think I'd realised quite how uh, prolific a run scorer Edrich was. Um, no one has scored more test runs for England against Australia at a higher average than Edrich since World War II. So he's a, a, a true England batting great. While, while Jackman, after his retirement, became one of the most popular and loved commentators in the world. Phil, very sad news and two very different but equally influential figures in the game. Yeah, and huge, iconic figures in at the Oval, of course. Um, both legends of... The, of of Surrey's, Surrey's successful, successful years. Uh, Edrich, I first came across John Edrich in, in a Jeff Boycott England 11 video that my nan bought me in the late 80s. This is why you've come to me first, isn't it, clearly? Um, and Boycott had Edrich in his all-time England 11 that he'd seen post-war. Uh, and he said there was no question that Edrich would be England's opening batsman um, of... of the post-war era, really. He was smallish, nuggety, left-handed, miserable, cantankerous, uh, unbreachable. Uh, he, ran, he ran the Surrey team in the early 70s with a pretty iron fist, by all accounts. Uh, and he was one of these kind of no-nonsense, like, totemic figures, really, in English cricket throughout that era. And he had incredible longevity as well. I mean, he made, a, he made an Ashes 100 in 75 when he was pushing 40. He might have even turned 40, I think. So he was one of these real tough, nuggety, old-school English, English archetypes, really. Uh, and he made 100 and 300, so he could bat as well. Made a triple 100 as well against New Zealand. So, yeah, a serious, serious player. And Robin Jackman had less of an effect for England. He only played a handful of, of, game, a handful of test matches was unwittingly uh, dragged in to the, the, the brouhaha around England's tour of West Indies in 1980, where his South African passport and birthplace uh, became problematic when England were, were trying to, to play in Guyana and that test match was called off and so on. And he became an unfortunate kind of lightning rod for the sort of racial tensions of the time. Absolutely nothing to do with him whatsoever. Uh, I didn't know him personally at all, but uh, he was always a great kind of, lyrical commentator, kind of uh, very kind of avuncular sort of style and was, a, was probably left a bigger legacy in South African cricket than he did in English cricket, really. He went, he, he retired back to South Africa having taken over a thousand wickets for Surrey. I think mean, 1,400 wickets, first-class wickets all in as a kind of medium pacer, only five foot nine, but a very effective medium, medium fast seamer. Then he went back to South Africa and brought through a lot of their great players as a coach. I think he was at Western, Western Province but worked in schools, worked in local townships, communities as well, and became one of the godfathers, really, of South African cricket as they came through in the 90s. Discovered Jack Callis. He was one of many on his list. Uh, and, yeah, the, the legacy that the both of them has left on the game continues right through to today, really. So, yeah, very sad loss for English cricket and world cricket, especially in, in relation to Jackman. Uh, two fine blokes and two fine cricketers. Well said. Um, as promised at the start of the show, we're having a look at what's to come in 2021. So I've asked the panel to come up with one thing they're looking forward to in 2021 and one thing they hope to see change in cricket in 2021. So, Taha, what, what would you first of all like to see change in cricket next year? Um, and then also, what are, you, what are you looking forward to? Obviously, we've had this year where we've kind of, we've, we've opened up to the, the sort of societal problems that sort of permeate English cricket as well in terms of 
race, class, um, cricket's diversity problem. Uh, 2020's obviously, it's been a year of admission that, the, that there's a problem. Uh, hopefully 2021 is a year of action. Um, I'm interested to see how things like the ACE program evolve uh, and whether, you know, the positive, the noises that, you know, organisations like the ECB are making, whether that translates into anything. So I'm looking forward to see change in that regard. In terms of what I'm looking forward to, obviously, like everyone else, I'd like to go to a ground which has some actual fans in it. Um, but the other thing is, I'm, we're obviously very England-centric here. Um, and this year is going to be, you know, a tour of India. India coming to England and then an Ashes. It's, it's, it's what you look forward to. There's so much cricket that's going to happen. There's going to be so many different stories that, that crop up. Uh, it's going to define careers. Obviously, you know, someone like Joe Root, this is, this is the, the year for him. We, we've, we can sort of nail down his legacy as a test skip, skipper this year. Uh, so I'm looking forward to see how that all plays out. Ben? Uh, well, what, what I'm hoping, Shane, we've, we've kind of covered, I think, that like a bit, I mean, as I said, I'd be optimistic, but I'd love a, a, a rethinking of the, uh, the, the global rights and how, how that functions in a, way, in a way that sort of helps pr- to preserve the game as a whole rather than each member body kind of understanding at the moment, but still in a way that's detrimental, sort of looking after their own interests, but as I say, that's optimistic. But, you know, who knows? Uh, as what I'm looking forward to, um, I guess, I mean, weirdly, it's, it's just the World, the World Test Championship final. I mean, I think that it could end up also as being one of the great sort of curios in cricket, if this is the one and only. Uh, but I kind of fancy that it will be a, a, a real good game, kind of whichever of, of those three teams it looks like it will be. If it's Australia, India, Australia, New Zealand, or New Zealand, India, whichever of those it is, it'll be like, there'll be reasons to get really excited about it, I think, and I think that it's, I'm really glad that, I mean, it looks like it's going to be in England, um, but I think that England is the right venue as well. I mean, they, we have the fairest pitches in the world, I think, um, and I think that, yeah, that's, that's kind of, from a group point of view, that's the thing I'm most looking forward to. Nice. And Phil? Uh, well, the thing I would like to change is, is something that Ben touched on earlier. I'd like to see substitutes introduced for crocked cricketers. Uh, I'd also, in the fullness of time, like to see substitutes introduced just to make the game more interesting. Um, and I can go in, into details and bore you with that, but uh, probably not for, not, for, not for now. One thing I would add, um, it's hard to get Adil Rashid into a test match team or it's hard to get Matthew Parkinson even into a four-day team. Uh, but if you were to allow to name, say, 13 at the start of a game, then that final day becomes far more interesting when you see a leg spinner turning up. And it becomes in- interesting within the, the context of games with the su- subplots of players who are just not performing. Why this, we have this kind of conservative aversion to like-for-like replacements is something that I've never fully understood in the game. And with the door having been knocked down regarding concussion substitutes, I would like to see it taken one step further. Uh, I felt this for a long time. I feel it specific, particularly this week after the, the mess of that Sri Lanka test match. Um, and I've seen too many games distorted over the years, uh, too many hollow wins as a consequence of 10, 11 v 10, 11 v 9. Um, so yeah, I would, look, I would like to see that change in the game at some point. Um, and what, I'd like to, what I hope to see, I'd like to see New Zealand win the, the WTC. I think that'd be great. It'd just be great if they can win it. Um, the, the big three of the big three, uh, New Zealand are making it the big four. And if they were to go ahead and win it, it would be a great coup for them. And for the test game itself. Nice oh, way. Joe Root to get a few. Love to see that too. I, I'm looking forward to, related to what you guys have said, actually, I'm really looking forward to teams starting to, to get a little bit worried about where they are in the ODI Super League. It's, it's the way in which teams will qualify for the next ODI World Cup. And because it's so early and because it's another kind of weird ICC tournament where you don't play in everyone and the fixture list isn't exactly fair, it's not really come under that much scrutiny yet. No one's really talking about it. But I think by this time next year, there'll be some teams who might have lost a series they didn't expect to. And suddenly they realise, hmm, we might not actually qualify for the World Cup or we're going to have to go through a qualifier. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, in terms of what, I'm, what I hope to see change is just cricket in the UK becoming more confident in the product that we already have. So the 100 will be on, on the BBC this year. Fingers crossed that all goes ahead. 
And that's an amazing opportunity to get cricket in front of people who haven't really watched it before. Um, and related to that, I think I just, it just occurred to me during the, the three Boxing Day tests, test cricket has never been this exciting before. I genuinely believe that um, with uh, batting techniques potentially not quite as good as what they were and bowlers with more skills than they ever had before. Um, you just have more exciting days of test cricket. So the uh, image that, you know, the casual, not even fan, but observer would have had a cricket being a boring, slow sport. I don't think it is the same sport as it was when it was last on free-to-air television. So I think cricket needs to be confident that test cricket is something that you can actually get in front of people. So I don't know how that actually manifests itself. Maybe uh, maybe highlight shows or, I don't know, on, on making more of a big deal about them and uh, maybe during the 100 talking about test cricket and, and trying to get people who watch the 100 for the first time into to actively get them in test cricket. Um, I think... Otherwise, I kind of think, what's what's the what's the point of this all? Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's a brilliant point. Yes, outstanding point. And and when the hundred does come round, um, the skeptics, of which there are many, and legitimately so, uh, the influencers within the game, uh, the social media warriors, and so on, um, whose whose opinions are all very very valid indeed. But I hope, like you, that when push comes to shove, we we broadly unify around the game because this thing has to work. It has to work for English cricket. And if people are queuing up to tell us that they told us so, then that doesn't really help in the end. So I absolutely agree with you. I think come the end, the rank and file, the people that we love and care for dearly and and share a lot of their concerns for the game's future, we've all got to come together and throw ourselves fully behind this thing because that's the only way we're going to persuade so-called new fans uh, to follow us. Uh, and finally, Billy Johnson asks, who will be England's breakout star in 2021? He then quickly clarified his question by saying, you're not allowed to say Dan Lawrence, someone who's on the fringe like Ollie Robinson or the second coming of Craig Overton. Anyone want to take that up? Well, Ollie, Ollie Robinson for me, I, I bang that drum quite a lot. I, don't know, I, I just think he's excellent. I think he's an excellent seamer who's got test match bowler written all over him. Um, so yeah, I think he will, he will feature quite quite heavily and regularly through the, the next 12 months. I'll give you in. Taha? Oh, and uh, Lamanby, the opener. I like him. Uh, I like, that'll do. That'll do. Uh, I might see Matt Parkinson potentially enter the T20 World Cup equation. Maybe not play with, you know, he's not going to play in front of Rashid, but I'd like to, it'd be, it'd be quite a sight to see two wrist spinners play for England uh, in the same team. So if that happens, I'll be pretty happy with that. I hope it's someone like uh, Phil Salt, who might not even play for England in 2021, but is sort of batting on free-to-air, smashing high-class bowlers everywhere in the 100, and is sort of becomes some sort of prominent figure because of that, rather than because of, uh, uh, because of what they do for England, I guess. That would be a sign that the tournament's working. Mm. I'm going to go with no one. I think... Um... Everyone, I don't think there's going to be an option. I'm not, I'm not gonna, I don't think there's going to be a breakout offer in 2021. Um, they've got quite a big pool of players that are all uh, quite well acquainted with at the moment. I, I don't really, I, I like Ollie Robson, but I can't really see a spot on the side. There's so many bowlers at the moment. Um, anyway, that's far too pragmatic an answer. <laughs> it's also not the most upbeat end of the show, but hey ho. Um, anyway, cheers all. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. If you enjoy the show, please do tell a friend about the show and if you're some time why don't leave us a five star view in the podcast cheers sports social podcast network